0: And I do not want you to be unashamed, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented thus far in order that I might obtain some fruit from you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. Thus for my part I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Father, thank you for Paul of old, who had an eagerness in his heart to preach the gospel. He saw himself as a debtor to all men, and you've made us debtors through the commission of your Son and through the good news that you've given to us Thank you for the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of your Son. You call it here the power of God for salvation to anyone and everyone who will believe. May we never be ashamed of it. May we not have regrets when we step into heaven, sad that our lips were closed so much that we did not more earnestly and consistently and faithfully in the power of your Spirit invite people into the kingdom. Now uh, This word that you've given us, we know it is from heaven, that it is not the words of men, but the very word of God. And thank you for its consistency through Genesis, from Genesis all the way to the Revelation. Thank you, our Father, for your word that is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We hunger for it this morning. You told us not to lean on our own understanding, but you told us to use it. But we need a sanctified understanding. We need the help of the Spirit of God today to take what He inspired and to help us to see it. And Father, we know we are in a difficult portion of the revelation, but that's part of growing. We know we are to learn and understand and seek and compare Scripture with Scripture. So help us today to do that. Help us to pay close attention because of our time here we pray that we would be different we pray for this new week that is in front of us we ask you to give us opportunities in season and out of season to preach the word to share it to reach out to the unsaved we ask that your hand would be over our anniversary celebration next sunday that you would bring people from across our county from other places who need to know Jesus. Help us to reach even some saints who need a church home. May you work in great power as we fellowship and enjoy each other's company. Now, Father, I confess that without you I can do nothing, but with you all things are possible. So I pray and ask you to fill me and anoint me now by the Spirit of God, and I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Take God's word, would you, this morning, Revelation chapter 20. We know very clearly that the next great event on the prophetic timetable of God is called the rapture of the church. The next event is the rapture, and after the rapture is enacted, a seven-year period of unprecedented time in human history is going to unfold. Jesus said, for then there will be a time of great tribulation. We've been studying that in chapters 6 through 18, a time of great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will." Now, I have amillennial friends, and that's an important word, and I hope by the end of the message you'll know what that means, who spiritualize God's Word, who say there is no future for the Jewish people. They typically call themselves Reformed Christians. It's a great word. They're not heretics. They espouse the five solas of the Reformation that's on the window behind us, but they have a distorted view of Israel. Sometimes they're Reformed Baptists, often Presbyterians. God is not done with Israel. God has a plan for the people of Israel, and I want you to see that today. But when they read a verse like this, there will be a time of great tribulation. They have to spiritualize it. Jesus at a time, since the beginning of the world until now, or ever shall be, there has never been a time like it before. We have no such time in all of the 6,000 years of recorded history that describe what Jesus is describing here in Matthew 24 and what the revelation has been unfolding for us. So your hermeneutic, another important word I hope you will know if you don't know it already before we're done. This is a very theological message I need to tell you. People want to study the revelation, but they don't want to apply themselves. They don't really want to dig and learn what it really says. But if you will compare Scripture with Scripture and let the Scripture interpret itself, you will be blessed. There will be a great blessing that the opening chapter promises on those who read and heed this message. Now, God tells us in 2 Peter chapter 1 that we are to pay attention to the prophetic word. Why? Because it serves as a lamp shining in a dark place. Yet I hear all the time people telling me, my pastor never speaks on Bible prophecy. How can you not when one-third of the Scripture is prophetic? Well, sometimes there's a system of theology that scares them away from it, or sometimes there's the abuse of the prophetic passages, the herald campings who set dates, and all the other wackos. It does not dismiss what God has given us here today. Now, we're going to look at just three verses. I suspect it will take me maybe four, even five sermons to get through this 20th chapter. But I want to read the first six verses so you have a sense, Scott, good to see you, of where we're headed today. Follow along. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him. "'so that he would not deceive the nations any longer "'until the thousand years were completed. "'After these things, he must be released for a short time. "'Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, "'and judgment was given to them. "'And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded "'because of their testimony of Jesus "'and because of the word of God, "'and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image "'had not received the mark on their forehead "'and on their hand, and they came to life "'and reigned with Christ for a thousand years.' The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. Now, the key to understanding any text is the context. Words find their meaning in the context, and so let me set the immediate and the broad context so you know where we are here in the Revelation. For those joining us for the first time here in the 20th chapter, we started over two years ago, and we learned in the opening chapter that the theme of the Revelation is found in Revelation 1-7, He is coming with the clouds. It's all about Jesus coming back, but we also saw that this is one of the few books in the Bible where God gives us a divine outline. There's a few books where God actually gives us the outline, and how important for this book, because it helps us to see the pattern that God has set. It's found in Revelation 1:19. Here's a chart helping you to visualize it. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, that's the past, that's Revelation chapter 1, and the things which are, that's the present, that's Revelation chapters 2 and 3, seven churches, and the things which will take place after these things, that is the future. So starting in Revelation 4 all the way through chapter 22, John writes about the things which will take place after these things. And so, we are in the after these things section of the book. Look at one. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Twice over, so you could not miss it. We call this the rapture. Every Christian believes in the rapture. You meet someone and say, well, I don't believe in the rapture. It's not in the Bible. It's in the Bible. It's in the Latin translation of the Bible that the church used for a thousand years. We shall all be caught up, Rapto. And so we get our word rapture. And so the church is caught up. And so from chapter 4 through 18, the church is never mentioned again not by accident. You do not see the church again until Jesus comes back in glory with his saints. Look at John 14. Listen to these words. In the upper room, Jesus said, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go and I prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, he promises, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now, Jesus has been gone for 2,000 years, and he's preparing a place for us, and I'm sure it's prime. But he says here that where I am, you may be also, where's Jesus right now? He is in heaven. Right now, he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and very clearly, when he comes for his people, he will not be changing addresses. We will. Now, the second, he doesn't say, I'm going to come back so that where you are, I will be. Now, that's true in the second coming. He will literally physically actually come to the earth. But in the rapture where he is this morning, that's where we are going to be. So here's a chart to help you to visualize the second coming program. It really unfolds in two parts, the rapture, the catching up, where Jesus comes for his saints. He takes us to heaven. It's referred to in the New Testament as the day of Christ. But then at the second coming, he comes back with his saints. He brings us, as we studied in the 19th chapter, on that army of white horses following him to the earth, and we will rule and reign with him for a thousand years. This is all a part of that time frame in the Bible called the day of the Lord. So first he comes for his saints, then he comes back with his saints. Now, the word saint is an important word. It just means... Hagios, holy one, and it refers to people who are set apart. And it is used in three specific ways in the Bible as this next chart helps you to visualize. There are Old Testament saints. And so David, who is the author of Psalm 34, the human author, he says, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. He's speaking there of Old Testament saints. Then the Bible uses the term in reference to those who are members of the church. The church did not exist in the Old Testament. Jesus said, I will build my church. And if you've taken my course on ecclesiology, we go through five proofs to show definitively, beyond a question of a doubt, there's no leakage in the evidence God left for us that the church began on the day of Pentecost. So Saul, now the Apostle Paul is described in Acts 9.13 as doing great harm to the saints in Jerusalem. The same chapter, the Apostle Peter, is said to have visited the saints who lived at Lydda. Even in the opening verse, when Paul writes to the Corinthians, he describes this church as saints by calling. Now, if you know anything about the Corinthians, they were not the strongest church in the New Testament. But it is proof that the way some, like my Roman Catholic friends, define sainthood is far different from the Bible. Sainthood is not something that is achieved or earned and given to you by some pope or some council. It is given to you by God Almighty the moment you believe on the Lord Jesus because you are deemed a holy one. It is imputed righteousness. Those are church saints. But when you read the Revelation, it's also important that when you see the word saint, it's not always in reference to church saints. There are tribulation saints. These are people between chapters 4 and 18 who had never heard the gospel prior to the rapture. They're hearing it for the first time, millions and millions from every tribe, tongue, and nation. The Great Commission will be fulfilled during this time. Jesus said the gospel will go to the whole world, and then the end will come, His second coming. It will happen during this time. There are saints who are saved. We call them tribulation saints. So chapter 4 ends with God receiving the praise of His four living creatures and the 24 elders. We saw that was a representative number of the church. Then chapter 5 opens with these words, notice, I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. It's the title deed to the earth. Adam's sin lost the right to rule. Christ's death on the cross regained the privilege. So he has given the title deed to the earth. Right now it is in the right hand of the Father, but it will be handed to God the Son, and he alone is worthy to break those seals. And when he begins to break those seals, what's called in Revelation 6, the wrath of the Lamb will begin to unfold. And we saw that this wrath comes in the form of 21 judgments, seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments. Here's a chart on the seal judgments. We studied those. First, we looked at the four horsemen of the apocalypse. We looked at those who are martyred during this time for believing in Jesus and rejecting the Antichrist. And then we saw the first of cosmic changes that will take place in the universe. And then before the seventh seal, is opened in which contains seven trumpets. And the architecture of the revelation is very important for us to get if we're going to understand it. Seven, 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 six, in interval, seven. And in the seventh seal is found seven trumpets. When we come to the seven trumpets, in the seventh trumpet are seven bulls of wrath. But between the sixth seal and the seventh seal, there's an interval. And we studied that in Revelation 7, where 144,000 Jewish people, are going to be converted, and they are going to be used of God to introduce millions into the kingdom. And the fruit of their ministry is described in that chapter. He compares it to the sand of the seashore that no one can count. Then in the seventh seal, when it's broken, you see seventh trumpets. And if you were here, we saw that unlike a seven-sealed document where you can only see one seal at a time, when the seventh seal is open, you can see all seven trumpets, and there's 30 minutes of silence in heaven. It just takes the breath away from people when they see what is about to happen, and so the tribulation goes from tribulation to great tribulation. And it happens right at the midpoint, Jesus said, "When the abomination of desolation is unfolded and so then again the same architecture between the sixth and the seventh trumpet there's an interval chapters 10 through 14. in chapter 10 we study the angel in his little book chapter 11 the two witnesses Then the war in chapter 12 and how God protects Israel. And then in chapter 13, the Antichrist's death and then his raising to life. And then in chapter 14, this eternal angel that preaches the gospel to the whole world. In chapter 15, the bulls are introduced, the shortest chapter in the Revelation. And then in chapter 16, we see those seven bull judgments. And once again, there's a brief interlude. But after the bull judgments are done, there's another interlude. The judgments are over, but again, he shows us what has been happening during this time in chapters 17 and 18, and the 10 kings and the 11th, the little horn that Daniel wrote about is going to be fulfilled during that time, and the capital of the Antichrist will be this place called Babylon, and it will have both religious and economic sides to it. Now, that's the setting. Now, we're in chapter 20. You can see the title of the message is The Doom of the Devil, and that's described in the first three verses. Two simple truths. One, Satan's doom will come by heavenly intervention. Satan's doom is going to come by heavenly intervention. Notice how the chapter opens. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. Now, there is a familiar phrase, then I saw or in some of your translations, and I saw. In the old New American Standard, it's and I saw. It's a little word, Kai, K-A-I, transliterated. In fact, that little word, translated and or then, depending on your Bible, is found in every single verse in the chapter with the exception of verse 5 that's linked to verse 4. And it's an important little word because contextually, he is showing you the sequence of time, how events unfold one after the other other. Now, I have one Bible, actually I have two, where there are no chapter and verse divisions at all. So if I turn to Revelation, there's no chapter, verses at all. I just, and that's helpful to me sometimes, because sometimes the chapter and verse divisions can be distracting. And you want to see that those artificial divisions, they're helpful. If we didn't have it, it probably would have taken us 10 minutes to find the passage. And certainly, it stops preachers from preaching forever, too. So you have some natural divisions. In either case, at the end of chapter 19, the last verse, we learn this. And the beast, remember him? He's called the Antichrist. The Bible tells us who he is. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet, that's his right-hand man, who points men to Antichrist, who performed the signs in his presence, these miracles, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image— These two were thrown alive in the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. So now it's only logical. God having dealt with the Antichrist and his false prophet, next he should deal with Satan. Now if you were here when we studied Revelation chapter 12, we saw four specific falls that Satan has that are recorded for us in Scripture. But if you were to go ahead and overview his entire career, it comes in six stages. Here's a chart that might be helpful to you. Stage one, which we studied earlier, is his ministry as the anointed cherub. He is a unique or was a unique angel of God. He led the other angels in praise as cherubs do. But he was the anointed cherub. He was the cherub of cherubs. But then stage two, which we studied, was his fall from Lucifer to Satan. Now, I know the word Lucifer has kind of evil connotations to it today, but that was actually his good name. That was his holy name. If you want to interpret the name, it means shining one. He was a great, wonderful, glorious, shining one that is called Lucifer, and his name is changed to Satan. And his fall is recorded in two key chapters, 14 times 2 is 28. Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, easy to remember, all right? Then, of course, uh, if you look, in fact, uh, hold here. Don't Don't go to the next stage yet. Hold here. Go back to Revelation chapter 12. There's no slides for this, by the way, so you need to turn there. Revelation 12. In Revelation 12 and in verse 4, it says, His tail, the dragon Satan, swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. When Satan fell from heaven, his power was extended from the heavenly realm also into the earthly realm. A third of these stars, we've seen the word star in the Revelation. It can refer to the literal stars you see in the heavens above, or as in many places in Old and New Testament, it refers to angelic beings. They are called the stars of God. Jesus said in the gospel, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning." Satan fell, and the New Testament reveals that he took a third of the angels. You say, that's a lot of the angels. It is, but remember, for every angel we fallen angel, we have two good ones, right? There's two-thirds that did not fall. And so Revelation 12.4, we studied it in depth, and in its context, it refers to a past event where Satan's power was extended just beyond the heavens down to the people who are on the earth. And so you see him there in the Garden of Eden working against Satan the evil one. Today, Satan, uh, working against Adam and Eve, today you see Satan who is very much at work in the world. And he's been at work for thousands and thousands of years, for 6,000 years of recorded history. If you remember in the book of Job, Satan comes into the presence of God. While he was thrown out of heaven, he still has access to heaven, but not as the anointed cherub. And so the B'nai Elohim, the sons of God, come into the presence of of God Almighty with some of the fallen angels, and they go ahead and they make a ploy with God to destroy Job. Now that brings us to the third stage of his evil work, where during the seven-year tribulation, Satan is literally physically brought down to the earth. There's a war in heaven between Michael and Satan. Look at, um, if you will, Revelation 12, look at verse 8, and let's look at verse 9 and they were not strong enough, Satan and his demons in the context, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon, one of his titles, was thrown down, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Now listen to verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation, the power, and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come down. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, and he accuses, he who accuses them before God day and night. Verse 10 informs us that this morning you are being accused by the evil one. Satan has his invisible forces. They are everywhere. And one of the things Satan does with his millions and millions of demons is he accuses the people of God. There's an unceasing, untiring echo of accusation in the throne room of God against God's people. But right in the midpoint of the tribulation as this chapter identifies it, dead center, Satan is going to be cast down to the earth. He will be forever banished from the heavenly realm. He will not be able to accuse anyone. But this morning, he can accuse people. That's why when Paul speaks of our security in Christ, he tries to survey every possible way that somehow we could lose our salvation, and there is no way. So he asks in Romans 8, who is the one who condemns? It's a rhetorical question. No one. Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, he was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. Christ is praying for you. And one of the things he prays for you is he defends you against the accusations of the evil one. But one of these days, Satan is going to be sent packing, but not yet. He may say, have you seen so-and-so? Did you see what they did? If you are a God of justice, you should punish them and send them to hell with me in the end. But as we sang, before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me, my name is graven on his hands, my name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. No evil accusation by Satan or any of his demons can stand against the nail-scarred hands of Jesus Christ. So there is this war in heaven, and the one who today is called the prince of the power of the air will no longer have that title because he will never again rule in the heavenly realms. But I want to tell you, there will be havoc on the earth. There will be double wrath, not just the wrath of the lamb, as Revelation 6 calls it, but even the wrath of Satan after the rapture of the church. That will bring us to stage four that we're going to study here in just a moment as pictured on this slide. In Revelation 20, we see the fourth downward fall of Satan where he's thrown into the abyss and he's locked in there for 1,000 years. His short time that Revelation Twelve speaks of when He's on the earth, three and a half years, is now over. At the second coming, He's thrown into the abyss for a thousand years. Then in stage five, uh, bring up stage five, He'll be released after the thousand years. We'll study that when we come to uh, verses seven through eight. I think it's a few sermons away. But there He will be released, and there's a purpose for His release. You say, why doesn't God just kill the devil now and throw away the key and be done with him? We'll see why. There's a purpose, and we'll see God's sovereign purpose. And then in stage six, the final aspect of his career, he is going to meet eternal condemnation in hell in the lake of fire. Now listen, the one who said, I will exalt myself above the stars of God is someday going to be brought into the lowest hell And if you are following him, you will ultimately be there with him if you die as a lost person. You say, I'm not following Satan. Well, if you haven't been born again, you are. If you have not been, as Colossians 1 says, rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son, then you are. One birth is not enough. You must be born twice to enter the kingdom of God. But I want to tell you when stage three happens, there's going to be a wave of anti-Semitism on the earth like we've never seen it. The seeds are being sown in our day, it's not by accident. There is a growing anti-Semitic spirit in our nation, and not just in our nation, but across the world. But there's a restrainer who is holding back evil. He's called the Spirit, but when his restraining ministry stops and Satan is here on the earth, You're going to see anti-Semitism like the world has never, ever seen it. Now, if you remember earlier in the tribulation, let me read to you Revelation 12, 12. It informs us. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. Well, his short time ends when he's thrown into the abyss. So look again, go back to Revelation 20, Revelation 20 verse 1, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss, and a great chain is in his hand. Now, God the Father, God the Son, or God the Spirit could have certainly thrown the devil into the abyss, but God in His sovereignty chooses to use an angel, and I think there's a reason why, because it communicates to any reader that Satan is not God's equal. Some people think, well, there's the good force, and there's the evil force. And the author and the inventor of the Star Wars was a pantheist. And if you read his book in the 70s, his goal was to feed the American public with pantheism, and he's done a great job of it. And so many blindly have almost adopted the theology of Star Wars. That was his goal. You can read it. It's in his own writing. It's in his own hand. And somehow people think that Satan is God's equal. Satan was created. He is not God's equal. 1 John 4, 4 says, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. The first he, they're capitalized, and rightly so in every English Bible, is God himself. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are not the devil's equal. The truth is, is that God could easily stop Satan today but we are going to learn why. God never is the author of sin, but He always uses sin in a sinless way. And we're going to learn how when we work through this chapter of Scripture. Again in verse 1, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hands. So once again, He's giving us this chronological sequence, having disposed of the Antichrist and the false prophet and the armies that come against Jesus at the campaign of the Armageddon, now he's going to deal with Satan himself. And we're told that this angel is holding the key to the abyss. Now, there are two angels at two different times who are given the key to the abyss. One is a fallen angel in order to execute an evil purpose, and this a holy angel to execute a righteous purpose. Remember back in chapter 9 and verse 1, and I saw a star, an angel from heaven, which had fallen to the earth, and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. This star, this fallen angel, is given the key that unlocks a door where there are millions of demons in this place this morning. And we're given a glimpse of one aspect of the underworld. In here, it's called the bottomless pit. Now, some of your translations just say the abyss, but it's better here bottomless pit, and it's not referring to a teenager's stomach, but it's actually referring to a literal actual place. Now, in the New American Standard, when the word abyss and pit appear together in the same phrase, they translate it, the bottomless pit. The Greek text literally says, the b- bottomless in its depth. Um, and so it's describing a, a literal, physical place, the, 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 a pit that is bottomless called the abyss. But when the word appears all by itself, abusus, then we usually give it its proper name, abyss. But it's referring to the same place. Now, this is important. Think your way through this. Here's a slide that helps us to see the different kinds of evil and fallen angels that are in the world today. First, you have those that have freedom to roam and to rule. Ephesians 6 describes them as being in heavenly places. Daniel, that should say Daniel 10, um, illustrates for us how they're at work in the heavenly places. They're organized. In Daniel 10, you see there are angels that are even over countries that have assignments. They are wreaking havoc this morning. They are trying to solicit even God's people to evil. The prince of the power of the air is using his demonic forces to work in the sons of disobedience. That's the first class. They have total freedom to rule and reign and to wreak havoc. There's a second class of fallen demons, and they are in a place called Tartarus. Second Peter 2 Peter 2.4 in Jude 1 chapter verse 6. Describe these angels. And this particular class of angels are kept, the Bible says, in eternal bonds. They'll never get out of Tartarus. It's a subset of hell. Someday Tartarus will also be in the lake of fire. But these are angels who committed something so wicked, so heinous, where they left their proper abode, to use the words of Jude. It's illustrated for us in Genesis 6, the Bnei Elohim, cohabitated the sons of God with the daughters of men. Demons, when they took on bodily form, and they can only appear as males in Scripture, at least every illustration we have, when a demon comes, they come as males. They literally try to cohabitate with women, and they do. You see that illustrated even in, uh, later on in the Genesis when there are some holy angels in the Sodomites, want to cohabitate with those angels who came as men. Even after they're blinded, they're trying to break the door down. They're driven by such hard loss. But these angels are in Tartarus. Then there's a third class, and these are angels who are temporarily in the bottomless pit or the abyss. Jesus dealt with such angels who were afraid they might go there. Remember, in Gadara, some of you went with me last time to Israel, we went to Gadara. We saw the actual hill right at the bottom, now it's cut by a road, but there's only one place, it's a class A spot, only one place in the whole Sea of Galilee it could have happened, and where those pigs literally ran right into the sea. And right there in the same place are all these tombs that go all the way back to the day of Christ. And of course, these demons who were possessing these two men, they were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. Don't incarcerate us in that place where we have no freedom. And the demons implored him to permit them to enter the swine, and he gave them permission. Now, you don't want to meet a demon out of the abyss, because demons who are in the abyss did something not worthy of eternal bonds but a great evil. And those are the demons that we saw earlier in the Revelation who are going to be released by the millions during the time of the tribulation. Then there's a fourth place of judgment, and it's called hell. Revelation 20 and verse 1, Satan is chained chained in the abyss for a thousand years. But at the end of the thousand years, he's going to be loose for a short period of time. We'll see why. And then he will be thrown into the lake of fire. So we learned also of the abyss back in Revelation 11 and verse 7, when the Antichrist receives his power from the abyss. Let me read that verse to you, Revelation 11, verse 7. When they have finished their testimony, he's talking about the two witnesses up there on the temple mount, and a rebuilt temple, That is going to be in place during the tribulation. It will be functioning, and in the middle of the tribulation, the Antichrist will go in and he'll stop the sacrifices that are unfolding. Maybe it will be a special dedication of sorts. I don't know. But these two witnesses who are there on the Temple Mount, on the top of Mount Zion, the text says that's what we call the Temple Mount today they're going to be teaching those Jews the meaning of those sacrifices. Most Jews today are very secular. But about 35% of the Jews in the world today are Orthodox. It's the Orthodox Jews who have all the plans for a new temple to be rebuilt. They've reproduced all the temple clothing, all the artifacts, with the exception of the Ark of the Covenant, because they say they know where it is. There are Jewish men right now who, outside of the city of Jerusalem, on a weekly basis, are learning... The sacrificial system and how to slay an animal so that when the temple is built, they will know how to do it. Well, these two witnesses, they, when they have finished their testimony, and I'm sure they'll be preaching to the Orthodox, but beyond them, many, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. Of course, God will raise them back up from the dead in three and a half days, not three days, three and a half No one is going to be deceived. These men are not messiahs of any type. There's only one who would be raised in the third day. Now remember, think about the Antichrist. He comes from two places, out of the sea and out of the abyss. Now, not literally out of the sea and not literally out of the abyss. What sea was he referring to? I did a whole message on it. The Mediterranean Sea, and it's in keeping what Daniel the prophet said that at the end of time, some nations from around the Mediterranean Sea are going to form a coalition, 10 nations, and then 11th will come up, the little horn amongst them, and that will be the Antichrist. He is going to come up out of the sea. He'll be some Jew in that section of the world. But the Scripture also says he'll come out of the abyss because when he is killed right in the middle of the tribulation period... He'll come back to life, not resurrected to life, but raised to life. But he'll come back with satanic power. Now, there's only two people in all the Scripture who are called the son of perdition. One is Judas, who is literally inhabited by not just a demon, but Satan himself. And then this man, and I suspect that Satan himself will literally inhabit him. He is going to come with great power. He'll kill the two witnesses. And he will seemingly be ruling like we have never seen. Now, contrary to popular mythology, the devil is not in hell. People say, well, the devil's in hell and he's torturing. He has never been in hell. He will not be placed in hell as we'll see next time until the end of the thousand years are over. Even unbelievers today are not in hell. They're in a place called Hades. It's a place of torment. But Hades, Revelation 20 tells us, will be also cast into the lake of fire. And the parallel here is beautiful. Just like Hades is a temporary place that becomes an eternal place in the lake of fire, even so the abyss, the place where fallen angels are, that's a temporary place, but it will become an eternal place in the lake of fire as well. Now look again in verse one. Then I saw an angel coming up from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. So an angel has the key to the abyss and a great chain. You say, well, is it a strong galvanized chain from Home Depot? What kind of a chain could chain the devil up? I don't know. All I know is it's a great chain. Yes, he's a spiritual being. But the point is, is that the devil for 1,000 years will be able to do zero. He and all of his demonic forces will be in the abyss. Now, that's the doom that will come by heavenly intervention. An angel from heaven will come down to the earth because that's where Satan has been in the last three and a half years. And he'll chain the devil and all of his forces in the abyss for a thousand years. Second, Satan's doom will come by heavenly incarceration. I told you this was theological, but listen, if you get this, even 25% of it, it's going to open up the rest of the revelation to you. And if this is new to you, go back and listen to the message again. Satan's doom will come by a heavenly incarceration. Look now at verse 2. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Now, Satan has many titles in the Bible. He's called here the dragon, the serpent, the devil, and Satan. The term dragon appears 13 times in the Revelation, 11 times in chapter 12, and then once each in chapter 16, and then the final time here in chapter 20. The word dragon describes his devouring personality. It's modified here as great because it speaks of his rank and of his power. And in other places, he's called the great red dragon. Red, a picture of blood. He is a bloodthirsty evil dragon being. The thief comes only to kill and to destroy and to steal. Jesus said in John 8, he was a murderer from the beginning. And so he is called here a devouring dragon. In addition, he's called the serpent of old. The term serpent, again, refers to his deceitful ways. And he's called the Archaeus, We get our word archaic from it. The Archaeus serpent. Literally, John calls him the old snake. Why does he call him the old serpent, the serpent of old? Because he wants to underscore in your thinking that he has not changed since he fell as an evil person. He is also called the slanderer. One of his aims, as we studied in Revelation 12, and I briefly reviewed this morning, is he is the accuser of our brethren. It's interesting. When you study the Word of God, there's only three times when you actually get to hear the voice of Satan. Three times. And each time he appears, he appears as a slanderer. In Genesis 3, what is he doing? He is slandering God before man. God's just ripping you off. He is holding back on you. He's cheating you. He's slandering God before man. The second time you hear Satan's voice is in the book of Job. And there he's slandering man before God. (laughs) Job, the only reason he follows you, God, is because you bought him. Take away the blessings and you'll see what Job is really made out of. And then the last time you hear Satan's voice is in Luke 4, Matthew 4, where he's slandering the God-man, Jesus Christ he slanders him. He is a vicious accuser. He is also called Satan. The word means literally Satanus adversary. He's your adversary this morning. So as a dragon, he is looking for someone to devour. As a serpent, he is looking for someone to deceive. As the devil, he is looking for someone to defame. And as your adversary, as Satan, he is looking for someone to defeat but there's good news. He doesn't win in the end. (laughs) Jesus is coming back. He's going to deal with this evil, wicked one. He laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Now, this angel is said to lay hold of him. It's a Greek verb that means to have power over him, to be someone's master. And the text is affirming us again that the devil is not God's equal. God just uses a holy angel to shut this guy up. Maybe Michael the archangel. And six times over, it tells us here of the phrase a thousand years. We call this the millennium. Now, that's just a Latin term that, which, by the way, see all these solos? They're from the Latin Translation of the Bible. So many of the phrases we have in Christendom today, like Trinity, it's a Latin word. Because the most translated version of the Bible was the Latin Vulgate. It was used exclusively for a thousand years of church history. It was the translation of the church. Milae is Latin for thousand annum, annual means year. So when we speak of the millennium, we're speaking of the thousand-year reign upon. Christ upon the earth. Someday, Jesus is going to come back. He will literally, physically, actually reign on the earth. He taught us in the model prayer to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The apostles believe that the Messiah would someday literally reign on the earth. Do you remember there on the Mount of Olives when he's getting ready to ascend into heaven, the very mountain? The Bible says he'll plant his feet upon when he comes at the second coming? Lord, is it time for you to restore the kingdom to Israel? He is talking all about the Holy Spirit and the Feast of Tabernacles, which is a picture of the coming reign of the Messiah, the Holy Spirit's power is seen all across the earth, and they think, Lord, is this the time? And if Jesus wanted to dismiss the concept that he had a kingdom for Israel, this would have been a perfect time. Oh, no, 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 no. There is no kingdom anymore for the Jewish people. The church, which I'm going to establish in 10 days, they are now God's chosen people. There is no such kingdom. But he never does that. He never says that, and if there was ever a time for him to say that, he could have said it then. Now, John lets us know how long the kingdom is. When you read Jewish rabbis going back several thousand years, they say, well, the kingdom of Messiah was 40 years. Some said it was 70 years. Some said it was 400 years. Some said it was 7,000 years, and they all have different reasons for coming up for that, but that was speculation on their part. God never said how long it was in the Old Testament. But the New Testament gives us the length of the kingdom. It's a 1,000 years. Now, the concept of the kingdom is not a New Testament teaching. It's taught in the Old Testament. But the length that it is a 1,000 years is something that God teaches. A literal 1,000 years. Now, I have some friends, they call themselves a-millennialists. A, ah, the prefix, means no. So they say there is no millennium. And so they have to spiritualize the book of Revelation. So are we talking about a literal thousand-year reign upon the earth? They say no. This is just a symbolic number. When you do that, you disembowel what God has clearly revealed. Here in the Revelation, the thrones are literal. The angels are literal. The martyrs are literal. Jesus is literal. The beast, the Antichrist, is literal. His image is literal. The 666 is literal. A thousand years are literal. God said what he meant, he meant what he said, and we shouldn't take it any differently. But no, there are people today who say, well, Israel, national Israel, the Jewish people, God's done with them. The church, they argue, is the new Israel. Oh, no, they are not. God made, and I did a whole message on this in our series. He made a covenant with Abraham that was unconditional in nature. It had nothing to do with the faithfulness of the Jewish people. Now, there are other covenants that God made with Israel that were conditional in nature. Like the Mosaic covenant. You do this, I'll bless you. You don't do it, you'll, well, you'll be whipped. I'll deal with you. I'll take you to the woodshed. I'll discipline you because those whom I love, I discipline. But the Abrahamic covenant was an unconditional, eternal covenant that God made. But here's the problem. It's a problem with hermeneutics. I told you that's a word you need to know. So if it's new to you, it just means how you interpret the Bible. What principle do you use to interpret the Bible? So the amillennialist uses a different principle to interpret prophecy than he does the rest of the Bible. He uses a dual hermeneutic all of the rest of Scripture, he just literally, normally, grammatically interprets the Scripture. But when it comes to prophecy, he spiritualizes how to interpret prophecy. So if you listen to the amillennialists of our day, they say, well, the book of Revelation, it's all history. With the exception of chapter 19, when Jesus comes again, it's all history That's why I told you in the opening words, Jesus said there is a time coming like the world has never seen and will never see again. That's never happened. Matthew 24 and 25, apart from the second coming, they say it's history. Jesus is just talking about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. No, 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 no. He is talking about some literal events. You say, well, how do you know, Pastor, your hermeneutic is correct. Because the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And so the way Jesus and the apostles interface with the Old Testament, they ask them a literal question. Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel at this time? Jesus in Matthew 24 literally interprets Daniel the prophet with the Antichrist coming into the temple to defile it. And even the Old Testament prophets, when they deal with their compatriots. And so here's Daniel. He is studying. They've been in a place called Babylon. And he wonders, how long are we going to be here? So he starts pouring over the prophet Jeremiah. And when he comes to Jeremiah chapter 25, he says, God revealed through his prophets 70 years. What does 70 years mean? 70 years. So the church fathers believed in a normal hermeneutic. They believed that Messiah would literally come and reign on the earth, and those were the people who lived closest to the apostles. Now, understand when we speak of a normal hermeneutic, we're not dismissing figures of speech. We have figures of speech in our day. When I say, it's raining cats and dogs outside, I don't mean it's literally raining cats and dogs. You know that is a figure of speech for very heavy rain. But liberal theologians and lost people, you know, when when you talk about especially some moral issue, they say, well, you don't literally interpret the Bible, do you? You're not saying that my adultery is wrong. Who are you to judge? Judge not, lest you be judged. Jesus said, also judge with righteous judgment. You're not saying that my adultery is wrong. You're not saying my abortion is wrong. It's a woman's right. You're not saying my homosexuality is wrong. God made me this way. You're not saying gender fluidity is wrong, are you? Yes, I am, because that's what God said, and God said what he meant, and he meant what he said. Now, understand, though, when you come to replacement theology, we're talking about not some liberal or some lost person. We're talking about brothers in Christ, and they believe all five of those solars on the window. So I'm not dismissing them as heretics. They're my brothers in Christ. Some, like Alistair Beg, he's preached in this pulpit. But he's a millennial. Now, I think a lot of them are a millennial out of ignorance. I really do. I just think they have not really thought this through and studied it. John Piper, he's a good brother in Christ, but look, he's wrong on Israel. He says Israel is no different from Uganda. Oh, yes, it is. It is very different. And God's not done with the people of Israel. And so to allegorize thousand, well, thousand just means a number of fullness. Who says? Well, others say thousand, well, it just means a long, long period of time. Who says? See, they don't know what it means. And they keep coming up with all these different interpretations because it's wide open when you allegorize the scripture. Now, there are certainly symbols in the Revelation. But the revelation interprets the revelation, and other passages interpret the revelation. When you understand what the symbol means, then you literally believe the symbol. But what this so-called Reformation theology, it's a beautiful, magnificent word. They've robbed it from the evangelicals, much like our Pentecostal brothers have robbed the word charismatic. I'm a charismatic Christian. I believe every Christian has at least one spiritual gift, but they relegate the word to a certain subset of spiritual gifts. But it's so called Reformed theology, often found in Presbyterians or Reformed Baptists and others, that unknowingly is planting the seeds for the anti Semitic movement in our day. But they have a whole system of theology that they have to protect. So Romans chapter 9 is not God choosing Israel out of all the nations of the world, which he says, Jacob, I loved, you, so I hate it. Where does that come from? Malachi 1. Where does that come from? Genesis. Two nations are in your room, and I chose Israel over the Edomites. But you see, Calvin said, God chose you to go to heaven and you go to hell. I didn't mean that literally, but, you know, uh, some to go to heaven and some to go to hell. And they have this doctrine of election. And so instead of Israel being elected out of all the nations of the world, it's individuals. Why? Because Israel's gone. Israel's done. And because of a rotten ecclesiology, it gives you a distorted eschatology and a warped Christology. Jesus didn't die for some. He died for all. And if you go to hell, it won't be because you are non-elect. The elector, the whosoever wills. The non-elector, the whosoever won'ts. If you go to hell, it won't be because you're unloved. It, was, it will be because you're unwilling to believe on Jesus as your Savior, But what they have done is they have, through this erroneous position, here it is on a map, kind of, of sorts. Again, they say we're in the church age, and we are. God is building His church. But they also say the church is in the Old Testament. And Christ is reigning, and he is. But they say it's a spiritual reign, that he's not going to literally someday reign. There's no millennium. Ah, alpha, millennium. Tribulation, we've always had it. The next event is Jesus coming back. And then we enter into the eternal state. Where did it come from? Actually, it came from a guy named Ticonius, who lived in the late 300s. And he influenced a man by the name of Origen. Origen didn't want to lose his head. You talk about a Messiah, a Christ named Jesus, who's going to be King of kings and Lord of lords. That could cost you your head. So let's just spiritualize the text. And he influenced this guy named Augustine. And Augustine really popularized the view. And so from Augustine came Roman Catholicism, and some reformers were saved out of Roman Catholicism, and they teach what the Roman church teaches. Listen to what Augustine said. How hateful to me are the enemies of your Scripture. How I wish that you would slay them, talking about the Jews. How I wish you would slay them with your two-edged sword so that there should be none to oppose your word. So Augustine taught the theory of substitution. That the church replaced Israel, that we are the new Israel, that God has debased and made Israel destitute as an example and as a warning to those who will not believe. And so he said, quote, the Jews who slew slew him and would not believe in him, then he goes on to say how they were punished by God through the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., and so Augustine said, they bear the guilt for the death of the Savior, for through their fathers they have killed Christ. Now, when you go into Yad Vashem, the very first little side view where they have all these different sections to describe the history of Israel is these words from Augustine. And you wonder why it's hard to win Jewish people today because of the anti-Semitic words that came out of the church. Oh, they killed Messiah. Actually, a Roman put the nails through his hands. Yes, they asked for his death, but may I remind you that you and I also killed the Messiah. He was pierced through for our iniquity. Our hard heart were the hammers and our sin were, sins were the nails that put him on that cross. And so the Roman Catholic Church, as it came into an entity of sorts, they took the doctrine of Augustine. Listen to what Pope Gregory the Ninth pictured here said: "They, the Jews, ought to know the yoke of perpetual enslavement because of their guilt. See to it that the perfidious Jews never, in the future, become insolent, but that they always suffer publicly the shame of their sin in servile fear." Listen to what Pope Pius V said. The Jewish people fell from the righteous heights because of their faithlessness and condemned their Redeemer to a shameful death. Their godlessness has assumed such forms that for the salvation of our own people it becomes necessary to prevent their disease. Now Luther is saved out of Catholicism. Listen to what Luther says. What then shall we Christians do with this damned, rejected race of Jews? First, their synagogue should be set on fire. Whatever does not burn up should be covered or spread over with dirt so that no one will be able to see a cinder or stone of it. Secondly, their homes should likewise be broken down and destroyed, for they perpetuate the same things there that they do in their synagogues. Thirdly, they should be deprived of their prayer books and Talmuds, in which such idolatry, lies, cursing, and blasphemy are taught. Fourthly, their rabbis must be forbidden under the threat of death to teach anyone." Listen to what John Calvin wrote in his French work in response to questions and objections of a certain Jew. There, the Jews' rotten and unbending stiff-neckedness deserves that they be oppressed unendingly and without measure or end, and that they die in their misery without the pity of anyone. What about loving your enemies if you think they are really an enemy? Listen to what Pope Paul VI said in 1965 at the Second Vatican Council. He said, and I quote, The church, church, referring to the Roman church, is the new people of God. Listen to what this special synod that met in October of 2010, a special synod of Roman Catholic bishops in the Middle East said, and I quote, We Christians cannot speak of the promised land as an exclusive right for a privileged Jewish people. This promise was nullified by Christ. In the kingdom of God, there is no longer a chosen people. Listen, it is this kind of talk that becomes a stumbling block to real, genuine, born-again Christians trying to evangelize the Jew. And they are planting and have planted seeds that are coming to fruition in this movement of anti-Semitism. And my dear Reformed brothers who would say none of these things that I just said, the fact that they are teaching that the church is the new Israel and God is done with the Jew, they've opened up the door for this kind of damage. But look at verse 2. This angel will literally lay hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil, and he will bound him for a thousand years. There's no reason to take the term thousand as symbolic. Listen, all the numbers and the revelation are to be taken literally. So why not this number? I mean, if the number a thousand is symbolic, does that mean the number 7,000 in Revelation 11 through the earthquake, those who are dead, is that symbolic? How about the number 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, the 144,000? Is that symbolic? How about the five months when those demons are let out of the abyss? Is that symbolic? Or what about the 42 months or the 1260 days? No, numbers are numbers in Scripture, and we are not to spiritualize them. Yes, when Jesus died on the cross... He disarmed Satan, but the actual disarming in its fullest sense will not be seen yet until the future. People say, well, he disarmed him, and that's what this is referring to. Well, if he's disarmed Satan and put him on a chain, he's on an awful long chain. I'll tell you what. Verse 3, I'm almost done. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him. So that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Now, again, my amillennials' friends allegorize all of this, but in the Revelation, the Battle of Armageddon is literal. The taking of the beast and the false prophet and thrown into the lake of fire is literal. The kings, the armies, Satan, the sa- it's all literal. And here we are told that Satan, with all of his demons, are thrown in the abyss, and he's locked up for a thousand years until the thousand years are completed. Now listen, there are Christians who have been deceived in every age, and the nature of deception is you don't know you are deceived, and Satan is a great deceiver, and he deceived Augustine, and he deceived my Roman Catholic friends. In the Protestant reformers who came out of Catholicism. But listen, if he is not literally bound, what about the resurrections that we'll study next time that are meant? Are these literal resurrections? Or are those symbolic too? No, Satan is like a roaring lion. He's seeking someone to devour, but we know in the end, we win. Now, how are we going to apply this today? Let me suggest three applications as we close. All Scripture is given by inspiration. And I know this is a heavy theological message, but if you get just 25% of it, it will help you so much in the chapters that will follow. Number one, this chapter should increase my awareness of God's timing. Now, I'm always amazed over the precision that you find in God's Word. And our God is indeed a God of order and a God of timing. This passage reveals that there is a specific day during a specific time frame of 1,000 years in which Satan will be thrown into the abyss. Timing is very important to God. For centuries, the Jewish people prayed for the coming of the Messiah, as did Gentile converts. And Paul says in the fullness of time, at just the right time, the Lord Jesus came. And he is going to come back in just the right time. Now, 2 Peter reminds us that that time frame will be mocked. Someone told me just this week, it happens monthly. They say, my pastor never speaks some prophecy. I suppose many times they can because they don't understand it because they spiritualize it. But you cannot speak and preach the whole counsel of God when one-third of it is prophetic in nature. But some are running from the wackos like Harold Camping, who set dates, and so many like him. Just sheer nonsense. And so in the end of time, people will be asked, where is the promise of his coming? You evangelical believers, you say Jesus is coming to sweep you off the earth one of these days. Ha, 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 ha. Never happened. Peter's answer, do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. Just because he's been gone for two thousand years does not mean he has forgotten his promises. And one of these days the trumpet is going to sound and he is going to come for the church. Second, this chapter should increase my awareness of God's sovereignty, of God's sovereignty. It's a fresh reminder to me that God is over all, even the demonic realm. And so Martin Luther was right when he said the devil is God's devil. And this chapter emphasizes that Satan can only do what God allows him to do. He wanted to sift Peter, and God gave him a limit. He wanted to bring harm to Job, but God gave him a limit. And it seems like there's a cloud of evil. My daughter-in-law said to me just recently, when she, was, she said, what is going on? I said, we are in a moral freefall, and not just in America, across the world, there are relentless reports of sexual harassment, newscasters, pastors, politicians, and it never seems to end. Then there's this movement of viewing pornography on the internet. So now men have to take pills to do what God says should come normally because they've distorted and perverted their own physical bodies. And now what used to be hidden behind a counter is so accessible. Add to that, we've got politicians who say, I want to kill my baby, and if I want to kill my baby in the day my baby is born, I ought to be able to do it. And atheists who want every vestige of the mention of God removed from the culture, and we have this opioid, opioid painkiller epidemic largely coming through the southern border that is ruining entire communities across our nation. Police shootings where they're no longer respected as men and women. Mass shootings in sacred places, even like churches, which is why we have like 19 here armed today throughout this campus and cameras on every section in every room. Schools that are being invaded by gunmen. Terrorists who are blowing themselves up and using vehicles and now the threat of nuclear war. And it just seems like the world is falling apart. Add to that, you have a nation who is turning from God. The Pew Research Center two months ago reported: quote, the majority of Americans now believe it is not necessary to believe in God to have good morals. 51%. In 10 years. Those between 18 and 29, 81% in 2007 said they never doubted the existence of God. In 2017, 52% in that age range now doubt the existence of God. Look, when a man says, I'm not sure there's a God, I don't know if there's a God, or there is not a God, he is suppressing the truth, and it's driven by a false morality and then, when you look at the millennials, and it's the scariest thing, in Generation X and others, and the occult that they are buying and embracing. Paul says, the Spirit explicitly says, in latter times, not the last days that began on Pentecost, but latter times, that time frame, right before Messiah returns, some will fall away from the faith and pay attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Ladies and gentlemen, this day has arrived. And while it may seem that the world is in total chaos, in God's perspective, it is under His total control. It may seem that God is unseated, but He is not. He is on His throne, and He knows precisely what He is doing. Greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. He is sovereign even over evil. Third and finally, this chapter should increase my awareness of my own Christian life. I mean, if you really knew and really believed that Jesus might come back today, and that the coming tribulation that will follow, that Jesus said will be unprecedented, how would you live? The most exciting truth we learn in the Revelation is the promise that Jesus is coming back probably sooner than most of us think. The book of the Revelation gives us signs for the second coming, not for the rapture. But the fact that we are seeing them fulfilled in our day reminds us the rapture is that much closer. And John tells us that whoever focuses on Christ's return purifies himself as he is pure. We have a worldly church. People who call themselves evangelical who are not that much different from the world. People who are deceived listen, I can't speak for anyone except myself, and I can deal with my heart and my issues, and I hope that you will deal with yours. And if you've never met Christ this time that is going to come, you don't have to be here for it if you will call upon Him in faith. Let's bow our heads, close our eyes. Now, our Father, I thank You for Your Word, for its truth, challenging truth, but you've given it to us for anyone to study. Oh God, I pray today for someone who is here in our midst who've never met the Lord Jesus. Help them to call upon him in faith. I thank you for my Reformed brothers, many of whom are preaching the gospel and doing great things for your son, but so many who have a twisted view of Israel so, Father, please help us to show and study ourselves approved, to pour over the Scriptures and not to interpret them differently than the way the Lord Jesus did. Help us as your people in this fresh week that is in front of us to care for the souls of men and women and boys and girls, to encourage those that know you, and to entreat that men and women might be reconciled to you through Christ. Help us, give us opportunities. This week, I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.